This is HPR episode 2757 entitled, How to DM, and is part of the series, Tabletop Gaming. It is hosted by Klaatu, and is about 45 minutes long, and carries a clean flag. The summary is, Klaatu explains how to DM an RPG, and Lost in Bronx demonstrates, step by step, how to build a dungeon. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hey everybody, this is Klaatu. You're listening to Hacker Public Radio. I've gotten a lot of great feedback over the last couple of months on the Interface Zero playthrough that I did with Taj and Lobath, and good feedback on the episode that I did with Lost in Bronx about getting started with RPGs. But people have also told me that one of the biggest blockers to actually getting started with an RPG, like actually making one happen for themselves, is is knowing what to do as the GM, as the game master. Now, I've read lots of rule books in my time. I, I really enjoy reading RPG rule books and even GM guides. And it seems to me that most of them assume you've either played an RPG before, and so you've seen an example of a game master at play, or you've seen one on YouTube or Twitch or, or some podcast. It's usually a safe assumption, to be fair, but it's easy to forget all of those great examples that you've seen when you're under pressure. So in this episode, Lost in Bronx and I are going to provide you with some clear and direct instructions on what exactly a GM does. Here's a quick caveat about the term GM and DM. GM is Game Master, DM is Dungeon Master. A DM is the original term from Dungeons and Dragons because Generally, the campaigns, the adventures that you would play, were set in a literal dungeon, and so the dungeon master would run the dungeon, and you would run the player, and that's that made sense. As D&D evolved and other RPGs came into existence, the term DM became very specific to Dungeons & Dragons, and so GM, Game Master, is the generified version of that especially since a lot of RPGs aren't set in a dungeon, and it doesn't really make sense to have a dungeon master in a game set in a post-apocalyptic megalopolis. So I use them interchangeably, just based on what my tongue decides to do at any given moment. So if I say DM or GM, it's the same thing. But without further ado, here is exactly what a GM or a DM does during a game. This is everything you need to know. You can stop listening to this episode after I provide you this list if you listen very, very carefully. So here's the short version. It's only two items. Item zero. Tell the players where they are and what they see around them. Item one. Listen to the players when they tell you what they want to do. Item two. Tell the players the outcome of their actions based on your privileged knowledge of the game world or on the roll of a dice. That's it. You loop over that sequence, and suddenly you're game mastering. But that makes for a short episode, and anyway, there are details about the process that we can talk about to make you feel more comfortable with the prospect of deciphering a game world with your friends. To that end, Lost in Bronx and I have started a website dedicated to gaming. 
you should check it out. You should subscribe to the RSS feed. We discuss everything game-related there, plus a little tech and all manner of topics of interest to geeks and hackers and probably, possibly, you. So I've given you the loop. I've given you the thing to iterate through over and over as the game goes on. But that only explains your function as the game master. It doesn't really explain how the game is created and built. There are lots of different ways to do this, and one of the ways is to build it yourself. This is actually an expectation built into games like Dungeons and & Dragons and, and lots of other games, because they provide you the rules, the game engine, and then expect that you, the game master, are going to actually build the story. So how is that done? Well, Lost in Bronx, as it turns out, has done this sort of thing for years and years and years, and so I'm going to turn to him for the original and arguably most correct answer on this process. You'll know it's time to listen for Lost in Bronx when Tinkerbell turns the page. Right off the bat, it's important to understand that every game master is different. No two styles of running a game match completely, nor should they. And, while there is no one correct way to run a game, there are plenty of ways to do it poorly. The GM wears many hats, but in my opinion, the most important duty is to make sure that everyone is having a good time. Your players are giving you an evening out of their lives. Next week, they'll probably give you another. It's your job to make sure that time isn't wasted. By definition, games, even role-playing games, are a form of entertainment, like reading a book, watching a movie, or enjoying the circus. When you go to that, the GM is the ringmaster, presenting the show, while the players are both the audience and the main attraction. The GM controls the world, the people, the monsters, the history, even the weather. The GM controls everything, in fact, except for the player characters. A game master presents the situation, but it's the players who decide what to do with that information. Now, this is all pretty vague, and describing RPGs is far less informative than playing them. If you are in doubt about how this type of gaming works, I encourage you to go and listen to Hacker Public Radio episodes HPR 2424, 2429, 2437, 2444, 2455. Klaatu's five-part cyberpunk adventure, Interface Zero, also known as Job and Security. These are excellent examples of actual gameplay. Even if you're already familiar with how RPGs are presented and experienced, you'll appreciate those shows. Now then... Almost all games are divided into genre types. Sword and sorcery, space opera, spies, superheroes, and pretty much everything else. And I mean everything. If there's a genre of fiction and storytelling that you enjoy, chances are there's a game or game setting for it somewhere. The most popular style of RPGs out there are fantasy. Think Lord of the Rings. Think Harry Potter. Think of anything, in fact, because all of it is possible. A staple of high fantasy gaming is the dungeon. That term has two meanings in this sort of game. First, the usual definition of what essentially amounts to the basement of a castle, complete with jails, interrogation rooms, storage rooms, and more. The other meaning refers specifically to a type of adventuring environment. Both of these are usually found underground, but an adventuring dungeon may have nothing to do with any castle. 
It might be a lost crypt, a cave system, an abandoned gold mine, or the lair of some horrid beast that's been terrorizing the countryside. In the dungeon might be enemies, monsters, and treasure protected by deadly traps. Magic abounds. There might be puzzles, dark secrets, or a kidnapped prince to rescue. As a new game master, you can start off in any manner you like, but a great way to get used to how the game works and how the whole process of providing an evening's entertainment to your friends or family works in this context is to create a dungeon from scratch and run your players through it. This episode assumes you own copies of any relevant rulebooks for the game. It's kind of hard to play without them. One simple game system I recommend, with which you can get started, is Brent P. Newhall's fabulous Dungeon Raiders. That's available at drivethroughrpg.com for whatever you want to pay, including nothing. With Brent's permission, we've also put together a very slightly revised edition, which you can grab at mixedsignals.ml. It cleans up a few of the tables and such. Same rules, though. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. Whatever game system you use, dungeons generally require setup time. That is to say, you have to design it in advance. Clatu and I are currently working on ways to ease that burden, with the ultimate goal of eliminating the pre-work entirely. For now, let's talk about the traditional way to approach all this. We'll be following a step-by-step process, but understand, it's only one of an infinite possible number of them. Step 1. Create the countryside. Some GMs say creating the world is the first step. Some say creating the godly pantheons for that world is the first. Some say it's the history or the fantasy races. They're not wrong, but trust me, when you're just starting out, none of that stuff matters. In this example, you'll be running the players through a dungeon. That dungeon is out in the country, within the middle of a large forest. It will make the beginning and end of the adventure easier if you have a small village nearby where the player characters all live. We'll call it Forestdale, for the lack of anything better. In Forestdale, there's an inn or tavern. This is where people get together, tell tall tales, and become inspired to go adventuring. Let's give it a name as well, the Prancing Unicorn. That's home base. Every player character knows this place, and everyone in it knows them. One of the stories being swapped at the Unicorn lately is about a tribe of dangerous creatures living in an underground lair somewhere within the forest. They are led by an evil wizard, or so the tales go. They've been attacking farmers and merchants who travel through the roads and footpaths to Forestdale so they may sell their goods. One of the merchants says he saw them escape down the western path near the old bridge. The player characters all know where that is. Something must be done, but who would be brave or foolhardy enough to even try? Assuming the player characters are those brave fools, they'll trek out to the old bridge and find a meandering path leading off to the west. Following this for an hour or more, they'll find a clearing surrounded by trees, vines, and shrubs. The mouth of the staircase leading to the dungeon is hidden behind some bushes. Looking carefully, 
the player characters will see many footprints coming and going. And that's the level of detail you need for your entire world right now. Not much. You'll flesh out the rest of it in later adventures. This stuff is new, remember. No one wants huge amounts of detail just yet, least of all you. You'll have enough to juggle before this dungeon crawl is over. Trust me. Step 2. Create the dungeon floor plan. You don't want to do more work than you need to. Let's make this a single-level dungeon. Later on, you can add a secret panel somewhere that reveals a set of stairs down to a second level, and from there a third, fourth, tenth, or more. For now, it's one level hidden below the forest. It's dark, it's dangerous, it's plenty. Putting a dungeon together can be difficult, but it doesn't have to be. The traditional way to create one of these is to use graph or hex paper and draw out the floor map. Each square of the graph paper is equal to 10 feet on a side, or say 3 meters. You make note of all rooms, caves, doors, hallways, stairs up and down, floor traps, hidden doors, and anything else you want in there. Be sure to put a set of stone stairs that lead from the forest above down to this dank and gloomy dungeon. There are no standard symbols for the different things on the map, despite what anyone might tell you. This is a step-by-step, -step, so for now, let's turn the paper landscape style so the long way goes side to side. Holding it that way, at the top of the page, somewhere at or near the middle, outline one square of the graph paper with a pencil. Inside the square, draw three or four small lines at an angle. This will represent a set of stairs. Next to the stairs, write the letter U. This is the way to get to the forest above. Granted, it's how the player characters will come down here to begin with, but once they are here, they have to go up to leave, hence the U. If that's confusing, you can write to the forest above next to this square, maybe with a little arrow pointing up. Either way, this is how your player characters will get in and out of your dungeon. We're going to draw the floor plan from the top of the page down. The entire dungeon map will be on one side of the paper. In the corner, draw another arrow pointing up and put a letter N there. That's north. We'll be using compass directions from now on. Granted, when underground, it's hard to get your bearings without a compass, but for this dungeon, we won't worry about that. North, south, east, west. It makes life easy. Near the bottom of the page, south, draw a box right in the middle that's 10 by 10 squares in size. This is where the dungeon tunnels all will be leading, and where we'll have the biggest fight of the adventure. We're setting that up now so we always know where we need to go when laying out tunnels and other rooms. Now go back to the stairs at the top of the page. Draw a long line from the lower edge of the stairs going west. Stop the line a square or two from the edge of the paper. Now do the same thing going east. Next, Move down one square and draw another line parallel to both of these, going entirely from one side of the page to the other, east to west. You've just created a tunnel, a place for the players to explore. So imagine it for a moment. 
they come down some broken, forgotten stairs. Let's say they travel at least a hundred feet down, tripping over tree roots and walking through cobwebs until the stairs deposit them in the middle of a dark tunnel, ten feet wide, ten feet tall. It stretches to either side, running east and west out of sight. You, as Game Master, know that it goes hundreds of feet in both directions, but you'll let them discover that for themselves. They listen and can hear nothing but the scurrying of unseen vermin. At least they hope that's what it is. Not a bad start. Along this hallway, on your map, you'll draw little rectangles, like black bars, on random squares upon the southern side of the tunnel. Not too many, just a few here and there, with generous space in between. These are heavy wooden doors. Some may be locked, some not. That's your choice. If they are, put a little symbol near them. It could be as simple as the letter L for locked, so let's go with that. Now you know where all the doors are in this particular tunnel, and you know which of them will be a challenge for the player characters to open. This is just the first tunnel of a larger complex. This complex can be as big or as small as you'd like. Let's say it's moderately sized. Before we draw branching hallways, let's draw the rooms behind those doors. This will tell us how much map space we'll have for further tunnels. Some GMs like to draw all the tunnels first and then fit in the rooms. You can do it however way you want later on. Right now, let's just use this method. Pick a door. Draw a box behind it three or four squares in size. That's the room. Now do the same behind the other doors. Make the rooms different shapes and sizes, but not too big. Let the large room at the bottom be the star. When you're done, you'll have a long tunnel with several mysterious doors, behind which are some good-sized rooms. On the part of the tunnel that ends on the west side, draw a connecting tunnel south for eight squares, and then turn the direction back to the east. Draw this tunnel going that way for ten squares. Put a door or two along here and draw some rooms for them. Turn the tunnel south again and go five or six squares and turn it west again for four squares. Draw a door and a room. Maybe it's locked, maybe not. Continue with this meandering, jagged floor plan, wandering east and then west, but always moving south. Add occasional doors and rooms as you go until your tunnel finally ends on the western side of the large 10 by 10 square room at the bottom of the page. Draw a door to get in there. Now go back up to the long tunnel at the top and repeat this whole process on the eastern side, eventually bringing that part of the tunnel to the eastern edge of the big room at the bottom. Put a door there. No matter which direction the players choose when they come down the stairs, they'll still end up where you want them to be. At this point, number your rooms on the map, starting at the top and working your way down, until you've marked each one. Room numbers are essential because you'll be keeping track of each one. The floor plan to your first dungeon is complete. Now you need to put interesting things in it. Step 3. 
populate your dungeon. Okay, on a separate piece of paper, list the rooms of your dungeon. Start at number one and go down. Beside the room number, write a brief description along with any monsters, treasure, or other points of interest. Go one by one and take your time. You'll be consulting this list throughout the game, so write down everything you need to know in order to minimize the amount of time that you'll inevitably have your nose in the rulebook during the game. Monster statistics, including their weapons and the damage that they do, should all be on this list. When putting creatures and other items into your dungeon, the first thing to remember is not to overload it. Not all rooms need monsters or treasure. It might be helpful to think in terms of what you'd like to see in the dungeon as a whole. Remember the stories of evil creatures and possibly a wizard which you heard at the Dancing Unicorn? We'll use that as our springboard. This is a first dungeon, not just for you, but also for the player characters. Starting dungeons mean low-level monsters. So let's go with goblins, which are short, mean creatures with a penchant for violence and mayhem. Goblins are generally quite impressed with magic, so we'll assume a human wizard of dubious moral fiber has bullied a small tribe of them into being his thugs. They've been waylaying passing merchants and farmers, stealing their wares and carrying off food, along with the occasional peasant worker as goblins love the taste of human flesh. Stupid but dreadful creatures, they have displayed a level of tactical organization that's not normal for them. This, of course, is because the wizard is in charge. Look up the statistics for goblins in your rule book and learn what they're like. For this adventure, we're not going to worry about goblin captains or goblin chiefs, both of which are tougher than average. You'll often find those listed in various monster guides, though not in dungeon raiders, so that's the one we'll stick with. No, all the creatures for this adventure have the same statistics. Don't drive yourself crazy writing these stats down over and over. Write them once at the bottom of the room list page, and every time the player characters run into goblins, consult those stats right there instead of juggling the rulebook. Let's say there are a total of 15 goblins in this dungeon. They won't all be in one place. The player characters will encounter a few of them here and there in various rooms, or maybe just wandering the tunnels. The rooms themselves will have the spoils of all their raids on forest travelers, including barrels of wine, hams and sides of beef. Furs and a few copper, silver, and gold coins can be found as well. All of this is treasure. If there's wine in one of the rooms, maybe the goblins there are drunk, fighting at a penalty to hit and damage. Once again... Not all the rooms need to have monsters or valuable things in them. Maybe this was once a temple, and there's just broken furniture and rotting religious robes in some of the rooms. In one, there might also be a tapestry against the wall, depicting a miracle of whatever god this place was once dedicated to. What you might not tell the player characters up front is that this tapestry could fetch a fair amount of gold coins in the market back in Forestdale. Too big to carry while exploring the dungeon, such a thing could always be rolled up and fetched on their way out. Not all treasure is found in wooden chests.
then again, a lot of it is, so why not put one in the big room to the south? Of course, they'll have to defeat the evil wizard and his goblin cohorts first, who are hanging out in there. As a rule of thumb, you might want to sprinkle half the goblins throughout the dungeon, leaving the other half here for the final fight. Stealth matters. Approaching the big room noisily and kicking open one of the doors is not stealthy. The player characters might be able to catch the wizard and his minions off guard if they move quietly. You may or may not want to suggest that. In order to be a credible threat to the player characters, this wizard should be of a slightly higher level, say second or third. He'll have some aggressive spells, and he'll have his goblins handy. You'll roll up the wizard the same way the players rolled up their characters, only you'll make him more experienced and with more spells at his command. Maybe he even has a magic item of some sort. Should the players defeat this guy, the magic item will be part of the treasure. Until then, it's something the wizard will use against them, if at all possible. Don't make it too tough. Maybe don't make it tough at all. A plus one ring of protection, maybe, or perhaps a plus one dagger. That might not sound like much, but it's more than the player characters have just yet. Not exciting enough, maybe? Just add in a couple of giant rats in one of the rooms. Maybe some large spiders in another. Don't forget to put their statistics down in the descriptions for their rooms. Judging how tough or easy a dungeon needs to be comes with experience. My suggestion is to err on the side of toughness and put more challenges in there than maybe you feel comfortable with. If the player characters are looking depleted and injured, you can easily just tell them the next room they come to is empty instead of being filled with snakes like you'd planned. Also, it doesn't hurt at all to remind the players now and then that it's okay to retreat. They can always come back another day when they've rested and made plans to defeat the wizard and his goblin horde based on the knowledge gained in the first adventure. It sets up a grudge match, the heroes versus the villains. You, as the game master, can just repopulate any killed goblins and move them around a bit in the dungeon so they're not in the same rooms as before though the big room to the south should still be reserved for the final fight. This represents two nights' worth of entertainment for the effort of only one. And there you have it, a stock dungeon that dovetails into the local lore of the countryside, ready for your players to explore. Hey everyone, it's me, Klaatu, because you heard Tinkerbell turning the page, so the host is different now. That was a lot of great information from Lost in Bronx that you've just listened to about, essentially, if you think about it, designing the board game, or or the board for the board game. And that's how, if you, if you think of an RPG in those terms, it makes some sense. It's the, the RPG creator has built the rules. They just never got around to building the board part of the game, the board game. So it's up to you, if you want, to build the board yourself. And that's the beauty of an RPG, is that it promotes a a high degree of independence and self-reliance, because they hand you the rules, pat you on the head, and you're off to design an infinite number of spaces in which those rules can be used. That said... Designing your own custom dungeon 
Maybe it seems intimidating to you. Maybe it seems like a lot of work to you. Maybe you just have no interest in that and you want everything created for you. Well, there is another way to go about this. It's a time-honored, very legitimate way to play, and it's quite often the way that I play. You go find an adventure that someone else has already written, and you run that. An adventure is the scenario you and your players experience when you sit down at the table to play. It's arguably the game. The rulebooks are the game engine, or the mechanics, and the adventure that you play, or the campaign, is the actual game. Wizards of the Coast, who are the owners of the Dungeons & Dragons brand Paizo, who own the Pathfinder brand Catalyst, Cobalt Press, Frog God, and many, many other publishers write and publish adventures, sometimes called modules or scenarios or adventure paths, and they're written by professional game designers and sent out to game stores everywhere for you to purchase and to use. These adventures provide the story framework for your game. Now, they're still quite flexible because you never really can tell what the players are going to do from one moment to the next, but they provide a a framework, a a, a setting for you, where you can have your players go through a pre-planned adventure, and it's your job then as the game master, well, as I said already, to tell your players what they see, to listen to your players when they tell you what they want to do, and then to tell your players the results of their actions based on your privileged knowledge of the game world and on dice rolls. Now, not all game systems publish adventures, or you may choose not to use one. If that's the case, spend some time developing a story yourself. Writing a good game is part science, part craft, part magic, but if you and your players are up to the challenge, then running blindly through a story that's being created spontaneously, on the spot, can be a lot of fun. If that sounds overwhelming, though, just get a published adventure. So my emphasis here is that you have the choice between doing whatever you want or submitting yourself to the storytelling of someone else who likes writing stories and games, and it's entirely up to you. So here's a quick tip. Free, small, or introductory adventures are often available from drivethroughrpg.com or dmsguild.com or opengamingstore.com. And you can find lots of others all over the internet. Many adventures have text blocks that provide you, the game master, with introductory text for each part of the game. They explain clearly what the goal of the players is during that segment, and they give you guidance on what players will find in the area and how those discoveries lead to the next plot point. So broadly speaking, there are two types of published adventures. Ad- adventures. There are one-shots and there are modules or adventure paths. A one-shot adventure is analogous to a quest in a video game. It's a single, clearly defined task with a very obvious and immediate result. For example, goblins are terrorizing the hapless citizens of a local village, so go to their cave, clear it out. If you do, you'll relieve the villagers of their horrors, and you get to keep any gold or weapons that you find. The advantage is that it's designed to be a quick, one-time game session, so it's perfect for playing with friends you only see once in a while, or with someone who's never played before and just isn't sure if it's something they want to commit to, 
Don't be fooled by the page count of these small adventures. It may be only 5 to 10 pages long, sometimes less, but you'll be surprised at how long players can spend exploring a boundless world existing only within their imagination. I have lots of thoughts on one-shot design, and I would love to do an episode on it at some point, but we'll see if there's interest level for that. So adventures, adventure paths, or modules as they used to be called, or campaigns, are bigger stories with loftier goals. You can think of them as lots of little one-shots strung together so that once players accomplish all the tasks and solve all the mysteries over the course of 200 pages, they have a final showdown with some big boss and win themselves a place in the legends of the game world. It's an epic poem instead of a short story. It feels grander, it feels more important, the losses along the way are more profound, and the victories are sweeter. These campaigns take months to play, and usually expect a gaming group to meet weekly or fortnightly, or at least monthly, to work their way through the tale. So the one-shots are, are a little bit more like if you wanted to get together with some friends and play Clue or Monopoly for a night, and instead you just play Dungeons and Dragons, or whatever RPG you choose, whereas the campaigns are a bigger commitment. I should mention one more kind of book you might stumble across, and these are source books. I mention this because I've had friends go to buy books more or less blindly, and then they bring them back home disappointed that instead of a book of lore about dark elves, they bought an adventure set in the Underdark, or the other way around. They wanted an adventure and ended up with a rule book. This happens with the bigger systems that produce a lot of media like D&D, Shadowrun, Pathfinder, Warhammer. So get clarity on what you're buying before you make a purchase. If you come across a cool Shadowrun book called Run Faster, expecting a campaign to run with your friends, you'll be surprised to find that you've purchased a source book full of meta types, expanded rules, and alternate character creation methods. Sort of a Shadowrun core rulebook part two. Same goes for, say, Volo's Guide with D&D, or Ultimate Campaign in Pathfinder. It can be overwhelming, and they're not all, always labeled really clearly, or if they are, the label gets lost in the word cloud of RPG jargon that you're not used to yet. So do a little research first. I, I, that probably, this is a topic that deserves an entire episode, to be honest. So I'm going to arbitrarily say, go listen to HPR 2770 from my take on the different types of books that you might find around the RPG industry. It'll be your guide on what to buy and what not to buy. Now, I've played through dungeons that a GM created over his lunch break, and I've played through adventures written by clever game designers, and I can confidently say that they're both great ways to RPG. But as a GM, if you feel overwhelmed by the idea of designing a dungeon... Maybe you just feel the expectations are too great, or maybe you just can't be bothered because you're a busy person. Then a published adventure is a great way to get started. Aside from reading a chapter ahead before each game night, all the prep work is done for you, and there's very little thinking required. Hi hey everyone, it's Lost in Bronx again. Oh wait, no it's not, it's Klaatu. Tinkerbell's magic failed. But that's okay, that happens in an RPG. Sometimes you roll a one, you roll poorly. So another part of being a game master is deciding when a die roll is necessary. Die rolls represent the chance of success or failure when a specific action is taken. But the confusing thing is, if you think hard enough about anything in the world, you can find a chance of success or failure. So as a game master, it's up to you to decide what's important enough for a dice roll. Strictly speaking, that's determined by the rules. The rules told you what requires a roll, and you're expected to know the rules well enough to make that call. 
In practice, however, you have a lot of stuff to track in your head as the game master. And remembering what requires a die roll or deciding a, to, to request a die roll, even though it may not be strictly required, can feel overwhelming for a new game master. Good news! Players intuitively know when to roll dice. A player knows their character's skills because they built the character and wrote it down on their character sheet. So sometimes the actions they choose to take are chosen because it falls within a category of a skill they happen to have. So, for instance, what I'm saying is that if a player is playing a thief, then they, they will think, oh, I should look for a hidden door. And they know that looking for a hidden door has a chance of success or failure. Because they don't know the answer to the question. Is there a hidden door there? I don't know. I need to ask the game master if there is a door there. And they just kind of know, well, I can't just ask for information like that. That's a die roll. Similarly, if a fighter is looking for a, a hidden door, they're not going to attempt to look for a hidden door. They're going to just pound on the wall to see if it breaks in. Because that's that's what their skill is. That They, they have strength. They have the ability to to bull rush through things. And so they know that if they pound on that wall, it may or may not break through. And once again, to find out the results of their actions, they know automatically that they have to look to the GM. And by extension, they know that they're not allowed to just ask for magical results. And so it requires a die roll. So if your player reaches for dice, let them roll, because they're probably right. It, it probably requires a die roll. I'm sure it's possible to take that too far, but people do like to roll dice in an RPG. It's part of the fun of the experience, the uncertainty of subjecting yourself to the whims of fate. So when in doubt, either make your players roll dice, or roll dice yourself. I use dice rolls to help me decide everything, from NPC reactions to weather conditions. It's usually safe to default to rolling. Worst case scenario is that die are only picked up for fights, and for a literal interpretation of skills, and that works, because those are the rules as written. Hey everyone, it's Klaatu again. Uh, it's already been Klaatu, I think. Well, anyway, players drive the story. In video games or movie terminology, they control the camera. When players are exploring or investigating, let them ask questions or take actions. So things like, I look in the closet, or... I look under the bed, and answer them as you see fit. You open the closet and see an array of fine garments. Okay, I'll move the clothes aside and examine the walls and the floor. I'm looking for a trap door or hidden compartments or anything suspicious. And so on. Players can choose to investigate and explore for as much as they want. That's the beauty of a pen and paper RPG. The world is infinite. That said, you're the game master, and you owe it to your players to keep the game moving. You don't want to let your players spend three real hours searching a room that, in the end, has no bearing on the plot whatsoever. Now, that can be a delicate matter. The nature of the game means that you know things that the other players don't. So, a big part of the puzzle for players is what they don't know. And if you simply tell them quickly, oh, this room is empty, there's nothing important here, then that spoils a lot of the game for them. Usually I let players explore a space on their own until I feel they've explored the obvious parts. Then I remind them where the exits are, or I remind them how many other rooms there are left to explore, or some subtle clue to say, without saying in so many words, that they've secured the area and there's no game importance that they haven't discovered already. 
If players are especially suspicious of something, though, you certainly have the power to generate a subplot, and oftentimes you should do that. It's fun for you and rewarding for the players. For instance, if a player is convinced that there's a secret panel in a closet and spends a lot of time investigating, and they give you good reasons why there's a there ought to be, according to their logic, a secret panel in, in the closet, then you might decide that there suddenly is a secret panel in the closet, and then roll on a random table to determine what could possibly be inside that compartment. Or you could leave the compartment empty there by creating a new story hook to return to later. What used to be in that compartment? Who took it and why? What were the implications? Keeping the game moving is an inexact and unscientific process, but usually it comes pretty naturally. When you start to get bored of the players exploring, you can bet that they're probably getting bored too, and that's when you know to urge them forward. If all else fails, you can always have something lure them in from one space to another, a mysterious sound, an oncoming threat, or a supernatural or divine instinct. So let's review at this point the th two steps of dungeon mastering or game mastering. So the zeroth point was to tell the players what's around them. So once again, you're going to know that either because you designed the dungeon in the first place or you've purchased a dungeon that someone else has designed and published. It will tell you what is around the players and what you can and cannot tell them exists. Obviously, you wouldn't want to blurt out Oh, and by the way, there's a trap on the fifth square of this room that, that would defeat the purpose of the game. You know, the first task is to listen to the players to see what they want to do. That's easy. You just do that naturally. You respond to your players. And then finally, the second task is to tell them the results of their actions. Now, that can be determined either by the structure of the of the space that they are playing in. So, for instance, if someone accidentally steps on that fifth square, then they've just triggered a, a trap. So if they tell you that they go over to the podium over on the sixth square, and to get there they have to pass through that fifth square, then you know they've just set off a trap. And you can tell them, oh, you have set off a trap. Here are the results of that. Or maybe maybe nothing is pre-scripted in the, in the, in the dungeon that they're playing in. In which case, going to that podium may just reset you back to zero, where you tell them what they see. Or alternately, maybe they've tried something that isn't pre-scripted, but does require a die roll. In which case, for instance, maybe they are, they are going to attempt to swing across a cavern, or a, a chasm, rather, using a rope. You have to determine whether they, whether they do that successfully, and the only way to know is to roll some dice. As I say, you keep looping over that. They start in one space, and they, by nature, move to another. You continue to tell them what they see and how things turn out for them. They continue to tell you what they do. And suddenly you're game mastering. This is how the game goes. Eventually the game ends. Either they reach the end of the dungeon, or they die, or the night, the hour just gets late and everyone has to go home. At the end of the game, or the end of the session, if it's a big big campaign that takes months, you should tally up all of the XP, the experience points, or whatever whatever measure of, of progress the game system that you're playing uses. Level the characters up as required, or tell them to level up when they go home, and set up plans for the next game. That's the only right way to do it. I think the most important thing, at least from my perspective, is not to over overthink an RPG. There are lots of weird representations of what happens in an RPG in 
media on TV and in movies and in books even. And most of it is about as accurate as depictions of hacking in the same media. Not very. If you want to play an RPG, gather at least two friends, sit down, and muddle through it. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be nervous. Don't think that you have to put on a show for your friends. It's a collaborative effort. Have fun. Make up some stuff. Roll some die. It's a game. It is meant to be enjoyable. So make it enjoyable. And you will come back time and time again. Because there is no other game as liberating and as infinite as an RPG. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Thank you.